You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 93, A Ridiculous War. Thanks for joining me. First thing before we get started, I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters. Your generosity keeps the show going. And don't forget that starting this month, Patreon supporters will be getting a little exclusive bonus content, so sign up now if you don't want to miss out. The second thing is, you may notice I sound a little different. There are two reasons for this. First, I got a new microphone, and second, I have COVID. I'm no longer coughing up blood like I was at the beginning of the week, but I'm still not back to 100%, so we'll see how this goes. You may also have noticed this episode is a little bit shorter than usual. That's why. Anyway. We left off last time in the fall of 1806, with Prussia and France on the brink of war. Less than a year after Austerlitz, Europe was bracing itself for another conflict. How had things gotten to this point? It was a strange momentum that had brought Prussia to the precipice. It wasn't the will of any one person, or even a group of people. The pro-war faction at Prussian court had been making arguments for this course of action for well over a year before they finally started to gain traction. It's hard to point to any specific event as the catalyst for Prussia's turn towards war. As late as August, there were still senior Prussian political leaders talking about an alliance with France. However, under the weak leadership of King Frederick William III, Prussian foreign policy had no single guiding hand. It tilted back and forth according to the trend of the moment and the general mood of the court. As the Prussians watched Europe transform around them, they found it increasingly unbearable to sit on the sidelines, neutral, having no impact on the momentous events occurring just beyond their borders. And so, the Prussian ruling class was generally happy and relieved to be on the road to war. A war which, until recently, many of them had been desperate to avoid. You might think that Napoleon was happy at this development. The Prussian army was comparatively small, inexperienced, and used outdated methods and doctrines. After the conquests of the preceding year, there were French troops on two of Prussia's three major land borders. From a certain perspective, this was a golden opportunity for yet another conquest. Austria's defeat in 1805 had seen Napoleon cement his control over southern and western Germany, 
Perhaps a Prussian defeat in 1806 would see the French eagle standards flying over northern and eastern Germany as well. However, Napoleon did not look at the prospect of war with Prussia as an opportunity. His attention was focused elsewhere. This nonsense with the Prussians was just another headache to be managed. So this looming war would be a strange one. The more powerful country did not want to fight and the less powerful country was pursuing conflict for a whole host of obscure reasons, many of which had little to do with the national interest. In fact, shortly before this period, Napoleon himself had called the idea of Prussia trying to fight France alone, quote, too ridiculous to merit discussion, end quote. But however improbable it may have once seemed, this ridiculous war was about to come to pass. At a cursory glance, it looked like suicide for Prussia to declare war on France. Napoleon had just shy of 400,000 soldiers at his immediate disposal, plus the possibility of more if he borrowed troops from his allies or called up the National Guard. The Prussians could not even muster 200,000 men, and that's even if you include the army of the Kingdom of Saxony, which was allied to Berlin and expected to join the war. The Prussian military was less than half the size of the French military. However, the more you look at the French strategic position, the less impressive it seems. With all the conquests of the preceding years, there were a lot of demands on the French army. There were 30,000 troops in southern Italy, securing Brother Joseph on the Neapolitan throne. 40,000 French troops kept the peace in northern Italy. At least 50,000 were needed along the English Channel to guard against a possible British landing in northern France or the Low Countries. There were even 13,000 French troops in faraway Dalmatia, the modern-day coast of Croatia. And as Napoleon began massing his troops in Germany to prepare for a possible war with Prussia, he knew he would have to leave some of them behind to maintain order in France's new German conquests and to keep an eye on the Habsburgs who were still licking their wounds from the previous year and in no condition to fight, but remained deeply hostile to France. Who could predict what type of trouble they might stir up without French troops to keep a lid on things? Many of these territories were still restive, and in many cases the French army was the only force maintaining order. Napoleon could not simply redeploy these troops, even with another war looming on the horizon. In practice, Napoleon would be able to bring under 200,000 troops to bear against Prussia. The French would have a numerical advantage, but only barely. But let's not forget, France was already at war. Count up all the members of the Third Coalition, including the British, Russians, Swedes, and others, the French were massively outnumbered. Of course, with Austria out of the war, there was no easy avenue for the members of the coalition to attack France, and no obvious way for them to marshal all their forces. However, this was a strategic reality that Napoleon had to consider. If France's enemies ever managed to get a foothold on or near the empire's borders, disaster could be right around the corner. And there were domestic problems as well. Remember, the country was still recovering from a serious financial crisis that had nearly consumed the entire economy. In fact, part of the reason the French military was scattered across the continent was that it was expensive to keep them at home, and the state could not afford it. 
Napoleon also had troubling reports from police minister Fouché, indicating that the public was growing weary of sacrifice and eager for peace. In the era before polling, measuring public opinion was an important duty of the secret police. Minister Fouché had an uncanny ability to keep his finger on the public pulse, or at least an ability to convince his superiors that he did. This is part of what made him so valuable to successive governments. Contrary to his popular image today, Napoleon never felt secure on the throne. He worried a lot about public opinion, and always believed he was in danger of being overthrown. I think he underestimated the stability of his own regime. But perhaps this attitude is not surprising for a man who lived through the French Revolution. So I think you can see why Napoleon had little desire to fight this war. He had total confidence in the Grande Armée, and no real fear of the Prussians, but this was not a convenient time, to say the least. The emperor believed the best tool at his disposal to avoid this war was deterrence. That if the Prussians really believed he was ready and willing to invade their country and crush their military at a moment's notice, they would be intimidated into backing down. It did make some sense. France had the military edge, and everyone knew King Frederick William was a weak leader with little taste for conflict. However, in his private correspondence, Napoleon himself acknowledged the contradiction here. The recent anti-French turn in Prussian foreign policy had been partially motivated by their fears of French aggression. All this saber-rattling could just as easily backfire and push them closer to war. However, with the benefit of hindsight, we can say it was unlikely any diplomatic strategy could have been successful in avoiding war. It seems that as early as June 1806, King Frederick William had already made up his mind to declare war on France. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. However, as the Prussians began to prepare their country for war, they ran into problems. In less than a year, the Prussian military had been mobilized, marched back and forth across the country for several months, demobilized, and now was remobilizing again. No surprise that the troops and the military bureaucracy were having trouble. And even under ideal conditions, the Prussian military was quite slow. In fact, a Prussian army of 1806 might have actually been slower than the armies of Frederick the Great during the Seven Years' War, half a century earlier. Not only had they failed to adapt since those days, many of the regulations about disciplined marching, organized baggage trains, and traveling light had come to be treated more like suggestions than rules. In his prime, Frederick the Great had been a stickler for this type of thing. That was part of what had made him so successful. But as the great king aged, standards began to slip, and after his death, 
no one in the civilian or military leadership had really stepped up to reimpose them. And so, the Prussian army took an almost lackadaisical approach to its movements. Even in peacetime, on friendly territory, they struggled to march with any urgency. A stark contrast with the Grande Armée, which had turned fast marches into a science. And it wasn't just slowness on the march. As the Prussian army struggled to get on a war footing, other problems emerged. People in authority seemed not to know what to do. Systems were not working as intended. Regulations seemed to be forgotten. A young Prussian officer would later recall the state of the army at this time, quote, Behind the facade, all was mildewed, end quote. That man's name was Karl von Clausewitz, and he would learn a lot from these experiences. The Prussians were also having problems on the diplomatic front. There had been extensive talks between Berlin and St. Petersburg. As I mentioned last episode, by this point in our story, the Russians were already massing an army corps in modern-day Belarus, preparing to march west to fight alongside the Prussians. However, there had been no coordination whatsoever with the other great power in the coalition, Britain. Remember, the Prussians had recently signed a deal with Napoleon, under which they had annexed the province of Hanover, which had been under French occupation after being seized from its legal sovereign, King George III of Great Britain. The British were still furious. They had not recognized Prussian rule over the province and had no intention of doing so. In fact, legally speaking, this was an act of war by Berlin. Obviously, the British already had a lot on their hands trying to deal with France, and had no intention of actually prosecuting another war on the continent against another one of the great powers. But they would have been well within their rights under international law to do so. So, Britain and Prussia were not at war, but relations between the two countries were about as bad as they could be short of armed conflict. In fact, they were so terrible that the Prussians had not even informed London that they were about to fight Napoleon. British help would not be forthcoming, at least not in the foreseeable future. Still, even with all these problems, as they prepared to face Napoleon, the general mood in Prussia remained happy. As the troops assembled at their depots and the quartermasters gathered supplies for the coming campaign, Queen Louise toured the country, conducting inspections. She cut quite a striking figure. The queen was 30 years old, small, feminine, and very beautiful. But when she was away from the court, she liked to dress to match her aggressive and outsized personality. Lots of outfits inspired by men's hunting clothes or military uniforms. These inspections were no joke. Louise really put the soldiers through their paces. You might think the men of the Prussian army would have resented this treatment, but apparently they loved it. Everywhere Louise traveled, she whipped her husband's soldiers into a frenzy. By the end of the summer, she was probably more popular than the king. Meanwhile, the French and Prussian governments continued to trade threats and ultimatums. It was becoming increasingly clear there would be no diplomatic solution. Begrudgingly, Napoleon ordered the Imperial Guard to Germany, and began making his plans to invade Prussia. The main goal of the campaign would be to deal a decisive defeat to the Prussians as quickly as possible, 
hopefully knocking them out of the war before the rest of the coalition had a chance to send any assistance. Napoleon had lots of options. The French controlled huge swaths of territory along the Prussian border. Ultimately, the emperor decided on an offensive from the south, from Bavaria, through the Thuringian Forest, into what is today eastern Germany. He knew there would be large numbers of Prussian troops in the area, to ensure the loyalty of Prussia's only ally, the Kingdom of Saxony, so there would be an opportunity for a quick battle. Then, Napoleon planned to use the superior speed of the Grande Armée to get between the Prussian forces and Berlin, their capital, military headquarters, and main supply depot. From this position, French forces would be able to cut off any potential help from the Russians to the east. This main thrust from the south would be accompanied by a diversionary attack from the west, led by Napoleon's younger brother, Louis, his first real test as King of Holland. It was a very solid plan, it made good strategic sense, and it played to all the strengths of the Grande Armée. Napoleon had good reason to be so confident. However, as France prepared for yet another round of fighting, there were ominous signs as well. Napoleon was forced to order a new round of conscription to expand the thin-stretched French military and to compensate for casualties, past and future. However, he was so worried about public opinion that he exempted all of the most hardcore royalist regions of France from this new draft. In the 1790s, conscription had been the spark that lit the flame of counter-revolution in the Vendée and other conservative areas. This was a precarious moment. Napoleon could not afford a repeat of that bloody chapter in French history. Better to let sleeping dogs lie and find his troops elsewhere. The emperor also ordered the cadets from France's military academies into the field. Some of these cadets were teenagers, really more boys than men, but there was a shortage of trained officers, so they would finish their education in the service. They would only be used for unimportant jobs behind the lines, in places like supply depots and training camps. But this was not a good sign. The French military was being stretched near its limits. In northern France, Napoleon ordered several thousand members of the National Guard to be mobilized and put through an intensive course of live-fire training. He had redeployed so many men from the Channel Coast to Germany that he worried the remaining forces would not be enough to resist a British landing. It had been roughly a decade since the National Guard had been used on any significant scale. These were poorly trained part-time soldiers, only to be used in a dire national emergency, like the one that had gripped France in the mid-1790s. If Napoleon was contemplating using these troops in combat against British regulars, he must have believed there was a real potential for a national emergency in the near future. It was not unlike the situation before Austerlitz. Napoleon's position was, in many ways, quite strong. But if he failed to land a decisive blow on his enemy, there was a real possibility that the whole house of cards could come crashing down. On September 25th, Napoleon left his palace at Saint-Cloud, headed east, to take command of his armies in Germany. Once his men were ready and his plans were set, Napoleon did not wait. On the 8th of October, 1806, the Grande Armée began marching north, into the Thuringian Forest. The next day, October 9th, 
French units began to emerge onto Saxon territory. Most historians mark this as the beginning of a new war, the War of the Fourth Coalition, but in many ways it was just a widening of the old war, another phase in an ongoing struggle. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For this campaign, the Grande Armée would be divided into seven corps, each containing between 19 and 30,000 men. First corps would be led by Marshal Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte an arrogant but highly competent commander. Like Napoleon, Bernadotte was a political soldier. As a young officer, he had been highly ambitious, and although he deferred to the emperor for now, many suspected those ambitions had not died. He and Napoleon had a difficult relationship. First, there was the obvious fact that ambitious people often butt heads. Bernadotte often felt he was snubbed and underrated by Bonaparte going all the way back to the 1790s. In 1799, he had been approached to take part in the coup that brought Napoleon to power, but had refused. And, perhaps worst of all, he had married Napoleon's first love, Desiree Clary. However, despite his awkward personal history with the emperor, Bernadotte was a capable general and popular within the army and that had been enough to secure his command for this all-important campaign. Third Corps was led by Marshal Louis-Nicolas de Vaux. De Vaux was one of the best officers in the army. We recently saw him hold the right flank at Austerlitz against massive enemy attacks. Despite his obvious talents, his cold, stern personality meant that he was not well-liked, even by many of his own men. Fourth Corps was led by Marshal Jean de Dieu Soult, the man who Napoleon had entrusted to seize the Pratzen Heights at Austerlitz. Soult had been a drill instructor before the Revolution, and he was famous, or perhaps notorious, for putting his troops through a demanding regimen of training and discipline. Napoleon had placed Soult in charge of the camp at Boulogne so he could take a lot of the credit for molding the Grande Armée into the force it was in 1806. When Napoleon questioned his harsh methods, Soult replied, quote, Those who can't handle what I myself endure will be left behind in the depots. Those that can will be fit to conquer the world. End quote. Fifth Corps was led by Marshal Jean Lann, who had been one of Napoleon's closest friends and most loyal protégés since the first Italian campaign. By now, Lann had begun to emerge from his mentor's shadow and had won a considerable reputation of his own. He was widely considered among the best generals in the army. Sixth Corps was led by Marshal Michel Ney, who was known within the army as the bravest of the brave. We last saw Ney in episode 82, leading his troops in a daring charge across a half-ruined bridge at the Battle of Elkingen. Seventh Corps was led by Marshal Charles-Pierre Augereau, the tough-talking brawler from the slums of Paris who had been one of Napoleon's best divisional commanders during the First Italian Campaign. 
There was also an all-mounted corps, the Reserve Cavalry, which would be led by the flamboyant Marshal Joachim Murat, Napoleon's friend and brother-in-law, who had led Napoleon's mounted troops since the very beginning of his rise on 13 Vendémiaire. Lastly, there was the Imperial Guard, about 8,000 of the best troops in the army. The Guard operated independently, and was not subordinated to any of the corps. This was an incredible array of military talent, some of the best commanders in modern history, serving under one of the all-time great military leaders at the peak of his abilities. However, as the army marched north, there was one problem. Where were the Prussians? In the last campaign, Napoleon's intelligence had been extraordinarily good. His light cavalry officers had spent months mapping the routes through southern Germany, and his great spy, Karl Schulmeister, had managed to penetrate the Austrian headquarters. However, later in the campaign, Schulmeister had been captured by the Austrians, savagely beaten, and left for dead on a roadside in Bohemia. He survived, but was in no condition for a repeat performance. Prussian foreign policy had changed so quickly there hadn't been time to lay all the intelligence groundwork for this invasion. As the Grande Armée marched into Saxony, French light cavalry roamed north, trying to pin down exactly where the Prussian forces were concentrated and what their plans might be. However, their reports were confusing and contradictory. No one at the French headquarters knew it, but the reason it was so hard to infer the Prussian war plan was that at this point in the campaign, there was no Prussian war plan. This was largely a consequence of one of the greatest weaknesses of the Prussian military. It did not have a general staff. We've discussed the concept of an army general staff in many past episodes. This was a central office that handled planning, personnel, logistics, communications, and other related tasks for the entire military. Centralizing all these duties within a single institution, staffed with professionals specifically trained for this work, had many advantages. By 1806, the concept of the general staff was no longer really new. It had emerged in the mid to late 18th century. Prussian officers had been calling for Berlin to found its own general staff since the 1770s, but more conservative officers had always resisted. The Prussian army was built around the principle of total obedience to a single genius commander, the idea of ceding some of a general's authority to these bureaucrats in uniform made many officers uncomfortable. It's a bit ironic because in the late 19th and early 20th century, the Prussian and later German general staff would become legendary. They were widely considered the best in the world. But this is how military developments often unfold. The great powers leapfrog each other. A victorious power rests on its laurels and its officers become inflexible, unwilling to change what they see as a winning formula. Meanwhile, defeated powers are desperate to learn the lessons of failure, and are generally much more open to embracing new methods and technologies. The French army of 1806 probably would not have been as innovative if it wasn't for all the failures in the Seven Years' War. And the Prussians probably would not have been as conservative or complacent if it hadn't been for all their success in that conflict. As they say, necessity is the mother of invention. 
All of this is to say that the Prussians went into war with France with only a rough idea of how they wanted to approach the first campaign. As they rushed to form a plan to defend their country, deep divisions emerged within the senior Prussian leadership. Some argued they should trade space for time, delay Napoleon as much as possible, and fall back, either to fight a defensive battle on good ground or to postpone a confrontation until help arrived from Russia. This strategy had some merit. It was put forward by Colonel Gerhard von Scharnhorst, probably the most capable of the Prussian war planners, and a man we will be talking a lot about in the future. In hindsight, this idea probably represented Prussia's only hope to preserve its army and eventually defeat Napoleon. But it would have taken time, and it would have been painful to allow the French to overrun so much of the country without a fight. Prussia was not a big country, they did not have very much space to trade away. Ultimately, the Prussian war planners decided this would be an insult to the army's honor. They had to fight. The plan was rejected. So the Prussians would seek a battle with the Grande Armée as it emerged from the Thuringian Forest. But it seemed every Prussian general had his own ideas as to where and how this should be done. No less than four competing plans emerged. There was no chief of staff to cut the Gordian knot and end the dispute. Only the king could make a decision. But, as we know, King Frederick William avoided making decisions at all costs. He was not about to start now. Instead of simply picking one of these competing plans, the king created a compromise plan that included elements from every proposal. He had successfully avoided making a decision, but this arrangement pleased no one and created dangerous confusion among the Prussian leadership. Senior field commanders could only guess at what strategy the king and his generals were trying to pursue. Armies in wartime have to act decisively in whatever they do. Instead, the king was hedging his bets. A frustrated Colonel Scharnhorst wrote, quote, I know right well what we should do. What we will do, God only knows. End quote. As reports of the confusion and listlessness of the Prussian forces reached his headquarters, Napoleon wrote, quote, Prussian movements continue to be most extraordinary. They need to be taught a lesson. End quote. Because he was unsure of Prussian intentions, the emperor ordered his corps to advance cautiously in three separate columns, close enough to support each other if one of them encountered the enemy. Napoleon compared this to a square formation on the battlefield. The units of the Grande Armée would guard each other's flanks and rear, just like the men in a square. Meanwhile, the Prussians continued to dither. That young Prussian officer, Karl von Clausewitz, would later recall, quote, The situation of the Prussian army of October 6th was a much entangled and dangerous one. If it was thought impossible to count on a strategic surprise, a clear decision should have been taken to assume the defensive, with all the advantages it could offer, end quote. But no clear decision was made one way or the other. Even with the Grande Armée bearing down on them, King Frederick William and his generals still had no clear plan of action. Next episode, we'll begin to dig into the consequences. Before I go, 
I'll remind you one more time to sign up on Patreon if you want access to the next Dispatch episode, which will be coming out in a few weeks. Until next time, thanks for listening. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com.